Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. So as I mentioned last week, this is something that's a little different to usual, that's a bit more of an in-depth study of uh, what 60s music really is, and what that attitude of recording and the approach uh, really is and we kind of drill down into that a little bit more in the, in this episode as well as some of the uh, songwriting um, and which I, I mention it in the episode that isn't my wheelhouse but it's something I'm certainly interested in um, so yeah we'll just dive straight in here's more from my conversation with Andy Morehouse aka Friends of Norman Havelock I think there's a, you know, not only do the, the musicians have to be, you know, really high quality to, to achieve that, but there has to be a certain amount of letting things go on your part, I suppose. Was was there? I mean, obviously they're going to play fairly well. You know, a, a part of the of getting great musicians in is they fair, they play fairly accurately to what you want in the first place because that's their job, is essentially, is interpreting what you what you're after. But at the same time, if you if you've got time constraints, there there is inevitably going to be some things that you go, oh, that wasn't quite what I was expecting, but I'm I'm really into that actually. Let's keep it. Yeah, I think there was. Um, I think both those things are right. I think there there were because the demos were quite clear and the sort of the creative brief about each song. This is we're talking about. This is the wall of sound, Phil Spector uh, type song from 1962 that's um you know so you immediately think of Hal Blaine for instance or you or you and you and um uh, all those other great sort of wrecking crew uh musicians and that mm-hmm. sort of thing so people understood that I think I think they instinctively understood what was after so so yeah the demos and the the charts gave it the the rock yeah it's this is 90% of what it is, but there was then obviously freedom to, you know, extrapolate things and, and go beyond and to use their enormous knowledge and, and skill of the motifs and the stylistic little hints and, and, and and forms that would be absolutely period correct and the right thing to play. And so, yeah, it's a joy when that comes out and you hear that, development of the the concept if you like that gets you know a really great player will will take it beyond your framework and 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 you know make it special and 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 that's what they all did yeah something else that um sort of piqued my interest is i'm reading a book at the moment about um one of the engineers that works with joe meek and a Mm. lot of joe meek's um sessions in in the 50s particularly were, were just done in bedrooms and you know mm. living rooms and mm. flats and things and um you know, ralph has a so you recorded this at the bunker at ralph's studio yeah the rhythm sections we did and then um vocals and percussion and various overdubs were at brighton road recording mm. studios in brighton uh strings were in prague um the horns in twickenham um, but yeah, basically the and 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 mix through Ralph's Ralph's place. Yeah. So I, I mean, his it is a you know a, a proper studio in inverted commas yes. with a you know with a tracking room and a and a mm. um, a sort of listening uh, what my a control room. Um, yes. But it's still a very intimate little environment. 
and that's kind of one of the things that I quite like about it. It's, um, you know, one aspect of, of sort of 60s music is Abbey Road and this huge mm. room and mm. big productions. And another aspect of it is small, intimate, you know, it's a garage attached to Ralph's house <laughs> that got converted yeah. into a studio. And it's a very comfortable, um, you know, you're not in a in a tight inner city that, that's been a pain in the ass to drive to. You're in a really comfortable environment that Ralph's created. Um, and that's got to have played a played a role in in adding to the effect that you're trying to get. I, th I think it absolutely did, and I think one of the things that I would say is, I think some people who've who've recorded for uh, any period of time will be familiar with the idea that you go into a recording studio to record your numbers, and you spend the first morning on the snare drum sound, and uh, <laughs> by day three you think you might just have got the hi hat done and what have you. And there, there, there can there can be a really dispiriting. Um, dull process of kind of adding complexity to what after all should be a really fun and powerful um, exercise music should be enjoyable to make to to write to make to record etc regardless of what the subject matter is there should be some pleasure that comes out of that and I think in a lot of um, recording that maybe gets wrung out a little bit and it just becomes a bit too mechanical but I think one of the great things about Ralph's place is that well he's got his scratch kit in there he's got the right mics etc all the rest of it the, the drum kit's in tune you walk in there he plays the drums he press record on the machine you record it so you just go in all the if you like the the noise and paraphernalia around recording was actually removed it was just <laughs> it's all set up it all sounds good because we've done that before and we know how to make this kit sound right. And that's basically to record it as yeah, it yeah. is, as the, you know, a properly maintained, properly built, maintained tuned kit, etc. Uh, the other, there's an incredible grand piano in there. There's um, various amps and things. You just, there was very little of what you might call engineering in the sense of getting a sound if you like and spending a lot of time getting a sound no no the, the sound is already there it's already in the room so let's just get the players in and they will bring the sound out and that's that's exactly what happened and again i think that's a very old-fashioned idea that you're going to focus on the performance and the playing and then yes you're going to you're going to revisit the sound when you get to mix it and so on and you're going to refine things and that's normal and you'd expect to do that but at the moment of it actually the the primary moment where you're recording it it's actually no no we don't need to do any of that let's focus on the performance and let's let's get these amazing players and capture what they do and that made it very special i think i'm just sort of digesting it all as as you're talking and i'm thinking um you know, back back through the sixties, that that whole sort of um, kind of feel was was achieved because, I guess, because of time constraints. You know, mm. studios were expensive, and they involved a lot of white coats. <laughs> in the case yeah. of Abbey Road, yeah. and you know, you'd go in and you'd have your three hour session booked. You got what you got, and um, you know, you had to be very quick. Um, you know, whether that was. Uh, 
you know, sort of the engineers working on it didn't know what we now know um, about certain mic placements and things. So they just put the mics in the prescripted places where that mic goes. So there wasn't really any creative thought about it necessarily until, say, Jeff Emmerich came along. Mm. Um, you know, you put your microphone where it needs to be. You do your you do your recording, and you you get the result in that quick time. Um, and kind of that was it happened because it was. Um, it was necessary for it to happen that way. Um, and now we almost, we have the opposite of that. We've got the world's our oyster in terms of recording. So we've, you've got to force that to happen in a sense. A force is a horrible word to have used because it, it sounds like it's, um, you know, it's like a making it happen in a really sort of forceful manner. But you have to create the right situation for that to happen and, and actually putting time constraints on it all and finding a space like Ralph's space where it's very comfortable and, and it's all the things you've just described, you you kind of created that right environment. And I'm sure that I'm sure that's something that you were aware of when you were doing it, but it's also just probably something that in the process has happened on its own, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. But I think I'm a great believer in these constraints. I think constraints, you need something to kick against and push off against in order to, you know, launch and make proper progress. And if you're somebody said well here's three hundred thousand pounds for the budget spent a year doing it um there are no limits on what you can do uh i think that tends to get into a self-serving indulgent type of thing rather than a very focused idea of what you're trying to achieve because i think the and you can see when as technology developed, I mean, you know, there are only a few, you know, a few records really in the late 60s that were on eight track even, you know, I mean, it, it, it took the 70s, it suddenly went to 24 track pretty quickly. And then suddenly that, you know, you've been five years earlier, you were on four track and now you're on 24 track. That's a world of difference. And that, that technology then determines how you relate to the technology, doesn't it? And it opens yeah. up possibilities. And there's nothing wrong with possibilities, but you, you, the kid in the sweet shop does not always get a better deal or better experience than the, the kid who knows exactly what they want to buy from the sweet shop and they go in and get it and 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 they maybe enjoy it more rather than having the tyranny of endless choice, which <laughs> is 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 difficult to to manage. And so I'm a great fan of actually saying no. These are the parameters. We're going to spend this much time on it. Um, we're going to know clearly what we're trying to achieve, clear vision. We all understand that and we're going to work toward that goal. I think that's something that um, is not hugely prevalent now, I think, in terms of the how music is made now as a general statement. Obviously, yeah. there are many, many artists who would, who would say, no, that's exactly what I do. Um, but... Um, that that sort of thing, having constraints, having limitations, having um, barriers, etc., to overcome, I think kind of makes it harder and makes you be more creative and more inventive, overcoming that than being given endless money, endless time, and and come out when you're ready, you know, <laughs> which is not not too productive. I don't. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I'm quite. It's not my usual wheelhouse, but I'm quite interested in your songwriting process with this because you've you've written a song for each year of the sixties, and yeah. um, I just I, I mean, did you? I, I can hear some influences in some of the songs, um, and I you can hear 
I my interpretation of what I think you were you were doing, but I'm just like you know, did for each song, did you kind of did you have a something you were basing it on musically or um, lyrically? Were you looking at what happened that year? I mean, how did it all when you sat down to go right 1963? What 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 kind of how did that work for you? Yeah, so I think the what I decided early on was I wasn't going to do a standard narrative of the 1960s. One one thing you could do is say, okay, 1960, well, we've got the Lady Chatterley's Lover obscenity trial. Then we've got, you know, you go through the 60s, you then got the Cuban Missile Crisis, you've got the assassination of JFK, you've got Beatlemania, um, you've got Swinging London, you've, you've got the Civil Rights Movement, you've got Women's Liberation, you've got hippiedom, you've got maybe Vietnam and then you've got the moon landing something like that and that's a kind of a standard narrative it's not the only narrative through the 60s but a lot of people would recognize that sort of thread and I sort of decided early on that I wasn't going to sort of pin each song in a rather obvious manner to that so I really wanted it to be Norman's personal journey through the through the 60s and this because I've, I've always had the belief that the 1960s that we're with we're as we understand them, it, it comes across like everybody was involved in, in some crazy happenings and psychedelic goings on and, and so on. And I think the reality is there were maybe four or 500 people in the middle of London who were indeed uh, embarking upon mind-expanding, uh, you know, interesting things with art and culture and all the rest of it. And everyone else was, you know, kind of dragging on from the 50s, if you like, and, and playing catch-up. And so really thematically, it had to be about Norman and the kind of person he was and thinking about, well, I think Norman, he probably hung around with Joe Mick. He, he would have known Ian Stewart, the, the Stones's um, keyboard, offstage keyboard player, you know, who didn't look right to be on stage with the, <laughs> with the Stones. Uh, so he was a nearly man. He was, um, you know, that kind of, you know, should have got further than he got type figure. Uh, but was maybe a little bit self-defeating because he had principles and things and he wasn't going to compromise. And so when you've got that sort of, you start thinking about the character and then you start thinking about each year. Well, 1963, for instance, I think, well, 1963, you could say, well, Please Please Me was probably the, the biggest thing in 1963, but there was a, a lot of other stuff going on and quite a lot of the other stuff was things like Bacharach David type compositions, Dusty Springfield, um there was the um you know i often think about john barry's work and 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 uh things like that in terms of bond themes you know the, from russia with love the first bond theme um in 63 that you you can develop those ideas and you get this this idea of orchestral pop if you like where there is um there really are big orchestras with a rhythm section and maybe some, you know, quite choral backing vocals and things. So we're starting to think about those kind of big, big production numbers, if you like, and look to kind of, you know, I've been a, a Burt Bacharach fan for as long as I can remember. And so, you know, just think about, well, what, what would it look like in 1963 if Norman was looking at Burt Bacharach, looking at John Barry, looking at these sorts of things, what, what, might he come up with and and the knowledge tree is is my sort of uh, homage to that that period so 
it's not linked specifically in a sort of really heavy-handed way to each year. It's just thinking about stylistically. The next year, 1964, well, it's a, it's a kind of a mod, you know, you would recognise it from the, the, the Who or something like that. It's, it's much more, but it's Norman's, you know, um, a slightly chaotic weekend in Brighton and the bank holiday in May 1964 that doesn't go according to plan. So it's, it's not specifically about mods fighting rockers on the <laughs> on the beach on Brighton seafront, but it's about imagine you were taking a trip down and your your brother, you know, borrowed your brother's car and went down to the seaside in in search of you know some uh, company, then. Yeah. Um, you know what might before you and and obviously it doesn't go quite right for norman but that's how I'd, i kind of approached it and then you go through each year you know you might find you know in slightly more um psychedelic times you might find something things getting a bit rockier a bit where you know the stones start using open g tuning and things that causes a you know shockwave in rock history really because that sound is kind of unique and um set uh, you know a whole strand of rock music in in motion i think at that point and then you can get into much more lyrical sort of uh folky type vibes and you can end up in a kind of country rock ballad really so it's it's looking at the the feel for the records that i would know from growing up and the the kinds of things and then thinking if i've got a working on a theme okay that's triggering certain sounds and influences of certain songs are oh, right okay that's a way that i could take these chords or this melody and then i could i could put it through that filter if you like and and start developing it in that way and that would inform the arrangement and the and the style from that uh, interesting it's uh, it's kind of nice hearing the sort of bit backtrack and um john barry influences it's very um uh cinematic at times and the strings particularly that's something you don't hear on a lot of records these days mm. and the strings are incredible they're just such they a are. standout thing on the record they're a mm. standout sound and you know i think a lot of people perhaps who listen to this podcast including me you know when i think when i you know sit in the car i'm putting on um you know kinks records or beatles mm. records or whatever and this isn't that but it's still it's it's still a it's it's still got everything that we want from a sixty sounding record there, and it's a it's an alternative view that doesn't get spoken about very often because people like the Beatles and the Stones take over, and that kind of rough and ready uh, side of things gets spoken about a bit more. So I was really surprised when I sat down to really listen to it in depth and thought, actually, this is a side of the of sort of the sixties scene that I. I am excited about listening to this. Well, that's great to hear. And I think, I think, yeah, if you could delve into the Burt Bacharach songbook, and it, obviously there are a lot of artists have, have played him and Hal David's songs, and they, they can be arranged in very, very different ways. But I think once you, you discover this, they don't let go. You know, A, they're incredible songs, but the, the arrangements that you get to Arif Mardin or, or other people might arrange these songs in and produce them in, in very interesting ways, might make them a little bit more R&B or, uh, you know, I think the obvious one I think of is um, 
I say a little prayer, the Aretha Franklin song, where if you listen to the Dionne Warwick original, the Burt Bacharach one, it's a lovely song, but it's transformed by the sort of Jerry Wexler production, you know, and um, given a much harder R&B feel um, that takes the song in a, in a new direction, I think, when Aretha Franklin does it. And because the songs are absolute, you know, gold, that either they can be, they're very malleable and they can be, um, you know, adapted in all sorts of ways. And I think there's that, there's a whole thing around 60s orchestral pop that is, is a really interesting avenue to look at. And, um, and I think is yeah, you're right. It's, it kind of gets a little bit overlooked in favor of Beatlestones, Kinks, who type the rock side of yeah, pop yeah. music that developed. And, and of course, that, that is incredibly powerful and influential in its own way too. But there are other colors at play, I think, and that's 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 part of the record. Is that there are stylistic things that were often quite short lived and, and what have you, and maybe didn't have the legs that some of the some of the other styles did have but it doesn't diminish them in any way and um yeah hopefully we've we've managed to capture some so what's uh the record's coming out this coming week isn't it yes it is yes um, so, and you're releasing on 12 inch um yeah. and where where can people find out about yeah so it's on as you can imagine all, all the digital platforms on spotify and apple music and deezer and tidal and all, all those that people would know um it's on a uh uh with diggersfactory.com which is a french label in terms of vinyl release uh, which i'm very excited about because i'm most of all i'm looking forward to hearing it on vinyl yeah. have the, the proper old school experience um so I'm really looking forward to that. It's on Bandcamp as well, if that's your thing and you want to um, listen to it in that in that way. So it's it, it's available. I haven't quite got around to cassettes yet, but so <laughs> if anyone wants to email me and say I like it on cassette, I'll put it on cassette. I'll hand I'll hand write it for you. But um, uh, yeah, so it's on it's on most formats. And then um, is this. Uh a start of Norman's journey. <laughs> Are we going to hear more of Norman? Yeah, yeah, it is. I, th I think that, I, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. I, I did it because I wanted to do it. And I've been blown away with how it's turned out because some of the, the generosity and the artistry of the people involved who've contributed to it. So, yes, I've, I'd like to do more um, at some stage, you know, if there's, there's demand to do some live things as well would be, would be great. Um, so I'm working on the second LP now, oh, cool. uh, just at the writing stage. So I would hope to get that written um, and demoed up by the summer, and then we can we can go from there, really. But yeah, the, you haven't heard the last of Norman. He's, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's, I like to um, well just develop him. Where would he go? What would he do? What would he think? What would Norman do? You know, that's the question. It's it's such a cool idea, and it's it's such a it's such a common theme from the 60s where you get these writers who you know like ron ron apart from a very sort of niche uh i'm talking about ron ryan here but that very yeah. niche kind of um uh clique of people in the world don't know who he is and you know it's not an uncommon story to to find a writer that that kind of you know did a few bits got missed out on some royalties due to um yeah. trusting people mm. too much and mm. now they just live a normal life and 
Um, that's it's sadly that's a really common narrative. So it, what, it is common. Yeah, and what you've what you've hit on with with this idea is, I think um, it's unusual, and it makes you go, it makes you stand back and go, "Oh, really?" And then you look into it and you go, "I love this. I really love this." <laughs> You're very kind, Joe. No, but that's it. But that's the, that's the truth yeah. of it, isn't it? It's a very I mean, odd experience. To it's, what you've created is different, and you know you've kind of it is you, you do have to spend a minute looking at it, and and then when you buy into it, it's it's such a fantastic idea. Oh, thank you. You're you're very kind. I think I'm, I'm quite interested by creating worlds, if you like. And I think you know often you might see novelists who are kind of known for this. So if you're a novelist who writes dystopian fantasies like you know the handmaid's tale or something like that or you know never let me go ishiguru or even jk rowling harry potter you're creating a world and it's a it's a kind of holistic um value system etc that that people can understand it all interlocks and works with precision so it all kind of makes sense and i think that idea hasn't really come across to music that in too much so it's 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 a way of you know looking at a an artistic expression through a, a kind of an imaginary world really and do you want to join and do you want to is it because you think Norman experienced these things or is he a Walter Mitty character who sat in his bedroom in Maidstone and never really got got beyond it because of crippling shyness or what is it you decide you know or did he actually end up in laurel canyon writing this folky dreamy harmony tune on a 12 string rickenbacker you know so (laughs) it's 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 for you to decide and that's 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 the key thing once it's out in the public domain the audience decides how it is really and that's that's a joy well uh well i'll link to everything in the in the podcast notes but and uh I will press people to go and listen to it in my outro as well as as well as right now. But yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, thank you for having me on your, your podcast. And I, I would like to say, you know, the podcast is terrific. And for instance, I came across Rare Tone Mastering uh, through your podcast because you interviewed Ben Pike a few months mm. back. And I thought he's the guy I'd like to master the record. So this kind of community that you've got going here is it really works people talk to each other and and share and and it's and it's great so i really appreciate you inviting me on and thank you pleasure and thanks for that i mean that that's that's what i set out to do with this is is to you know find a find a group of like-minded people and Mm. uh, little did i know that there's a heck of a lot of like there's a lot of that (laughs) yeah so and i'm really pleased it's it's kind of grown into a a community that doesn't involve me necessarily you know everybody's off doing their own things absolutely that's great really exciting thank Um, you joe So there we have it, my conversation with Andy Morehouse, aka Friends of Norman Havelock. I would encourage you to go and check that album out. It really is special. It's a very cool thing that Andy's created, um, the way it was conceived and thought about, and the way it's the the sort of approach to recording and everything about it is is very very special. So do go and have give it a listen, uh, especially in light of this conversation. And um, so that just leaves me to say a big thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with me. Uh, for any reason, episode suggestions, 
uh, I don't know what else you'd want to you'd want to email me about <laughs> the sessions I do on my website or anything like that. You can visit my website, which is all you need is drums dot com, uh, and you can see there's all the uh, drum stems and things I do up there. Uh, also, you can get in touch. My email is joe at all you need is drums dot com. Blumenek, my patter this evening is absolutely atrocious. I think I'm quite tired. But I'm going to leave it in because I'm not recording this. Believe it or not, this is the second time I've recorded this outro. And um, I just need to go and uh, go to bed, I think. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to stop waffling. That just leaves me to say a big thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, uh, to Adam Mallett for the artwork, and to Rory Hancock for editing the podcast and uploading it. And a huge thank you to you for listening. And I will be back next week with another episode. I am tired. <laughs> Goodbye! Bye.